I'll read this morning from the first epistle of Peter, the third chapter, uh, beginning with the tenth verse to the end of the chapter, and the words are as follows, in Jesus' name. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? But, and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you, as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometimes were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water, the like figure whereunto even, even baptism doth also now save us, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is gone into heaven and is on the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers being made subject unto him. Amen. <clears throat> Very difficult place to, in the Bible to even understand the, the language to follow the, follow the words and to... It's one of those places where we read sometimes and say, well, what does he mean by all of this? Not that any of us have full understanding, even at best, but sometimes we can see little glimpses, if the Spirit allows, of what God, through the pen of Peter, would bring us to know and to understand. We all have, so to speak, two lives, every one of us. We have the social life, I'll call it the outward life, the relationship with other people around us, at work, at home, wherever we are. And then the other life that we have is the inward life within ourselves, with our thoughts, our feelings, our hopes, our fears, struggles. And those around us can know a little bit sometimes of the inward life. Some of us 
are more open and honest and and we talk about the things that go in, on within us and others are very closed and private and almost never speak of those things. Women tend to speak of those things to each other far more often than men. Men very seldom speak of the inward things that go on in their hearts. They, I guess God made them that way, but women are more apt to. And when we read in Scripture, even as in this place, we read of both the outward and of the inward the when it speaks of that Christ hath once suffered for sins well we know we know the we can read of the inward of the outward suffering how he was persecuted he was accused he was he was driven from the face of men he was tempted in the wilderness 40 days and 40 nights and he was hungered and tempted of the devil. We know how the ultimate of suffering, the outward suffering came to place before the judgment seat of Pontius Pilate when he was beaten and spit upon and then nailed to the cross. And we can read of those things, but we can only read about the effects of the suffering in the Garden of Gethsemane. We cannot understand the suffering. We can only, the Bible can only speak of the effects of it. And the effects of it were so great that he sweat, as it were, it says, great drops of blood. I have never, and I don't think anyone here has ever seen anyone in such inward torment and agony within their heart without anybody physically doing anything to them, but just inwardly going through such a great torment that blood started to come out of their sweat pores and the red blood ran down their skin and dropped to the ground so we can we can't know even of the inward suffering of Jesus and the bible speaks of it when he talks in isaiah he says i looked and there was none to help and he says mine own arm brought salvation we sing in the song that it was alone that Jesus prayed. All alone. The three disciples that were nearest and journeyed close, most closely with him, when they went there, he brought them with him, Peter, James, and John. And, and while he was going through this inward suffering, it said they slept, and it even says they slept for sorrow. It was a very lonely and sad place, and they knew that their master was having a hard time for some reason, and they didn't understand, but so they went to sleep. 
and twice he came and woke them up and he says could you not watch with me one hour but it was alone he had to bear it and when he went the third time he said to them sleep on I will bear it by myself and he had to bear it by himself and I point this all out so that we would understand and know that scripture does not only address the outward things but it addresses the inward things and when it speaks of the struggles of a child of God it does not only speak of the struggles that we have in this world in our relationship with other people but it speaks also of the struggles that we have within our own heart as he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the spirit so is it even now scripture says and that takes place right inside here and I will not go through this whole text there's, there's way way too much and and I didn't even know where to start but but I thought I'd start with this 10th verse where it speaks of the he that would love life and see good days and who, who of us doesn't want a good life and good days the earth is full of evil and life is full of full of problems and trouble but if you've gone through a day and and you've had a day of peace no one's angry at you you haven't you haven't had any struggles with anyone and and you haven't had any great struggles within things have gone kind of well even outwardly when you've gone to do something it's worked you've gone to make something you bake something and it turns out good you go to build something and it turns out good and and sometimes we have a good day and really that's what our life is is from one day to the next we look and try to have a good day so at the end of the day we can lay down at rest and, and be comforted but we have to say that those are few and far between aren't they these good days that we have in this world because there's so much trouble but if we would want to love life and see good days the advice to us is that we, we refrain our tongue from evil and lips that speak no guile and that we eschew evil and do good and seek peace and ensue it the world seeks for joy and we have to say that we do too we seek for pleasure we seek for for things that are fun pleasurable to do but there's a difference between seeking fun and or finding fun and pleasure and finding peace peace is a lasting thing it's a deep thing in the the outward fun things that they're done and they're gone and there's no memory much memory of them and there's really no lasting satisfaction but it becomes almost like a slavery to seek from day to day for another thing that's fun to do and this is all that the world knows to do but the children of God are exhorted and even the world is exhorted if they would listen not to seek for pleasure but to seek for peace because a life of peace is a blessed life. It is not something that the flesh relishes, but it certainly is something 
that the Spirit seeks after. We stopped last night to, my wife and I, to, to visit to, uh, with Ida for a little while there and, and it was really nice to see. I mean, the whole, most of the family was there and, and like Billy says, she couldn't talk and she, she didn't have her eyes open, but she had a perpetual smile and she was totally aware. And when I went there, she, they said who was there, her smile got a little bigger and she put her hand forward to greet me so she she knows exactly what is there and and all her children were there and grandchildren around there and uh and there certainly was an appearance of of peace and joy on her countenance and i thought that's amazing that's amazing that person can be in that condition and and be happy and be happy and and that's really what god wants to offer us is is a peace she wasn't having pleasure. She wasn't having fun. But there was a peace there. And, and it was enhanced. And, and I'm sure by the, the love of her children and family and the, and the devotion that was there. It was really a nice, it was really a nice place to be. But it says the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. So almost it sounds like the ones that are doing evil, God doesn't hear their prayers. And if somebody is doing evil, then they might as well not pray at all because God's not going to listen to them. But if the righteous pray to God, well, then He's going to be there to hear them and causes quite a conflict. What hope is there for a sinner? What hope is there? And when you examine your own heart and you say that, well, God is watching the righteous and He listens to the righteous, but how about me? And I remember my own struggle when I was in the service, when I was in Germany and I was far from the Christians. And I would pray to God and... I would tell God that that I know you don't hear these prayers because your ears are open to the righteous. So I would ask God to hear the prayers of those Christians that are praying for me. And then I, my mind would say, well, wait a minute, he doesn't even hear that prayer. And I'd just say, well, never mind. I didn't struggle with the mental flip-flop that took place. That how could he even hear that? But anyway, the cry on my heart and the prayer on my heart was that he would hear the prayers of the righteous for, in my behalf. And because I knew that they were praying for me. But it isn't that there's righteous people and there are evil people. It doesn't mean that sitting in this room are some of you are righteous and some are you of you are evil. That some of you, God hears your prayers and others, his eyes are turned away from you. But in each one of us, in each one of us is that which is born of God and that which is born of the Spirit. The Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword. It doesn't divide between good people and bad people, between the Christians and the world. 
It divides the soul and the spirit. It divides you. It divides me. It divides that which is of God and that which is of the flesh. It divides that which is born of the flesh, which persecutes that which is born of the spirit. And this scripture talks a lot in very many places about that struggle, not the outward struggle that we have in this world and between men, but the inward struggle that we have in our own heart, in our own lives. And the evil one, the unrighteous, asks God for a good life, for pleasant things. Let me be healthy. Let me make a lot of money and have a pleasurable life. Let me be a winner, even if it means that everybody else is a loser. Let me win. Let me be popular. And our flesh desires all the same things that every person in this world desires. We have the same flesh as all the rest of the world. And when we start praying to God for all of these outward things, and it's not that God wants us to have a miserable life and that he doesn't give us even as we know to give good things to our children we are God's children and he does bless our natural life but many times when we ask we ask amiss we don't receive it because we ask it to consume it upon our own lust it's not really for our benefit and God knows that these prayers are not coming from, from that righteous portion within us but it's coming from our fleshly portion and he doesn't grant those things but his eyes are over that part in us that is of Christ that part in us that groans that part in us that longs to be freed from the prison of this flesh and he hears the sighs and he hears the groans and he's very attentive. And the, his angels are there to watch over us. And, and within us, when there is a sighing within our spirit, he's very, very attentive to that. And in those things, he wants to help us. In those things, he wants to comfort us and to give us peace. There is nothing more desirable before God than this, that each one of us would have peace. Isn't that what every epistle starts with? This comes from the heart of God. Grace, mercy, and peace be multiplied unto you. When Jesus appeared behind the locked doors and his disciples were sitting there, he says, peace be unto you. May you have peace. That is the desire of God and the and the, and the will of God toward all of us that we could journey in peace. We can't journey in a life free from trouble, even as it speaks of here. Who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? But, and if ye suffer for righteousness sake, happy are ye. We will suffer, but we won't be harmed. We do have a life of suffering and sometimes, and then Peter exhorts and he says, sanctify God in your hearts. Sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. 
And be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is within you with meekness and fear. Isn't God holy and pure? Is God holy and pure? Is He blameless and just and righteous? Yes, He is. Does He always seem that way to us? No, sometimes He doesn't. It's very, very common among men to become angry with God. It's very common. And then people struggle with that. God takes away a little boy or a little girl from a mom or a dad and it just seems for no reason. An innocent child. And the mom and dad says, why didn't he take me? Why did, why did he take my little boy or my little girl? Why did he take my baby? And they become angry with God. Why did you do this to me? You have power over life and death and you could preserve, you can heal, you could have been there. Where were your angels that you've promised to send to guard them? And when that happens within our hearts, we become accusers of God. Sanctifying God in our hearts is not easy to do. When the children of Israel were in the wilderness, they had all, all seen miracles, miracles like this world had ever known before, open miracles between, before the eyes of thousands of people. And they're in the wilderness, and their lips are dry, and their mouth is parched, and there's thousands of them, and it's hot, and it's dusty. They're standing there and there's nothing but dry, barren ground everywhere. There's not a cloud in the sky, but the sun beats down mercilessly. And they told Moses, you've brought us out here to die. We're dying of thirst. There's no water for our cattle. Our babies are crying with thirst and we don't have any water to give them. You brought us out here just to perish. Why didn't you leave us in Egypt where we were? And God heard, and God was very aware of their needs. And he told Moses, take and smite that rock. Take your staff and smite that rock. And Moses went and took his staff and he took this rock and he hit it with his staff and it started gushing out water. More water than they could ever drink or need or use. It just came flowing continually from that rock. And the New Testament tells us that that rock that followed them was Christ. But when Moses hit that rock, he says, Must I bring you forth water? He didn't just obey, but along with that, there was a cry from his heart, Do I have to bring you water too? And because he said that, when it came time to enter into the land of Canaan, God said, because ye refused to sanctify me at the rock of Moribah, you didn't sanctify me there. You will not enter into that land of promise. You'll behold it. I will take you up on a mountain and you can behold it with your eyes, but you won't enter in because you didn't sanctify me, Moses. And here it says that we should sanctify God in our hearts. What Moses 
if we led people in such a way and we told them that you are sinful, you are you are corrupt, you have transgressed the commandments of God, everything you do in your life is evil, and God casts evil people into hell, and that is where you are going because of your ungodliness and your sin. Amen. And we left people in that place. Would God be sanctified in their eyes? Would they not become accusers of God and say that, well, how can I help it? I didn't choose to be what I am. I didn't make myself. I didn't put lust into my flesh. I didn't do this. How can I be, be guilty? Why would God send me to hell to burn forever when I had no choice in the matter? He made me what I am. He made man subject to sin. It was God's creation in the Garden of Eden that fell under the temptation of the devil. That's what the result of such a sermon would be. But when we sanctify God, we can say to all mankind that surely you are sinful. Everything about you is corrupt. Everything about you is evil. But God loves your soul. And He loved you enough that He looked down at you from heaven and He looked at His beloved Son that had been with Him from eternity and He says, I will give Him for you. I will turn my eyes and my heart and my compassion and my mercy away from Him so that I can turn it upon you. When He cries out in the agony of suffering, I will block my ears and I will turn my face away so that I can turn my face with mercy and compassion and forgiveness toward you. I will give everything that I have. I myself will bear your sins so that you can be my child. God is sanctified. No man on the face of the earth can stand before God ever and say that it's your fault if I perish because God has given all and he has given it for every man there is no person nowhere on this earth that we can meet that we can talk to there's no person we can ever look at that is walking and living and breathing on this earth that we can't say of that person that God loves that person enough to give his son to die for them. I don't care who they are. God loved every person enough to give his son to die for their sins. That is sanctifying God. That is, in the eyes of all the world, making God to be blameless. When those people thirsted in the wilderness and there was nothing for them to drink, Christ, that water came forth from Christ, which was that rock. Even as he spoke of himself to the woman at the well of Samaria, who drinks of the water that I give, it shall become in him a fountain of water springing forth everlasting life. He is the fountain of living waters. And to bring forth water out of that rock 
unto men is to sanctify God in the eyes of all men. And then he, he talks about having a good conscience. Whereas they speak of you as evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation or your good life in Christ. We generally look at people and we look at what they do, but we don't know why they're doing it. And we assume if they are doing something and we don't approve of what they do, then they shouldn't be doing it. And Christ walked that kind of a journey the whole time he walked here. He was accused he was accused mostly of being a publican, a friend of, of publicans and sinners. He sat down. He just associated with anybody. He didn't turn away from lepers, but he associated with them. He didn't turn away from whores, but he spoke to them. And he spoke with kindness to them. Publicans were money-hungry, greedy businessmen preying on their fellow Jewish citizens for the sake of the Romans. They were the most despised, despicable lot outcasts in the eyes of the Jews. And Jesus had no problem sitting down with them and, and having fellowship with them. And they didn't know with what heart Jesus was doing it. They didn't know why he was doing it. All they knew was that he was associating with some bad company. And if he was a righteous man, he certainly would know what kind of people they are and he wouldn't associate with them. And so he was accused. He was accused falsely. And often we are judged in the same way. And even if we would want to do good, we don't want to do it because people might get the wrong idea. Don't ever worry about that. Don't ever, ever worry about people getting the wrong idea about what you're doing if in your own heart you know that what you are doing is acceptable before God and is pleasing before God even if it might not look quite right be more concerned with how you stand before God than how you appear before men because often people are accused falsely they speak evil of you as evildoers but if you can do it with a good conscience, if you can do it knowing that you are doing that which is acceptable before God, then, then do it freely and willingly. And then it talks about Christ suffering the sins. He suffered for the sins of the just, for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened in the spirit by which he also went and preached unto the spirits in prison. What spirits are in prison? There's a spirit, there's spirits within many of us that are in prison. There are spirits within us that cry out because of the prison and the bondage of the flesh that it bears. There were many, many spirits that were in prison that cried out when Jesus journeyed on this earth. They cried out, Jesus, the son of David, have mercy on me. Free me from this prison. Free me from this prison of darkness. The blind man cried out. Free me from this prison of flesh where I can't even walk. I can't take one step. The lame man cried out. Free me from this prison of uncleanness that I can stand before other men 
and not have them run away from me in disgust, the lepers cried out to him. Those same prisons are yet here today. There are those that journey in the same prisons. And Jesus wants to preach to those prisoners. Those spirits that are in prison. And then he starts to talk about a very difficult thing. And he starts to talk about those that were disobedient. And this is a very hard place to understand. That were disobedient when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls were saved by water. The like figure whereunto even baptism doth now save us. And then there's an aside, a parenthesis. But the continuation of that sentence is the like figure whereunto even baptism doth now save us by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the aside says, not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. We know that in the in Noah's day, God sent the flood to destroy the world because the world was evil. That was the reason that the flood came, to destroy the world. But now we read in Peter that it was sent to save Noah. In a like figure whereunto baptism doth now save us. Well, was the flood sent to destroy the world or was the flood sent to save Noah? And the answer to both questions is yes. Why did God send the flood to destroy the world? Because if the flood world had not been destroyed, Noah could not have been saved. He would have been destroyed by the world. It's like a, the world is like a contamination. It's... Uh, when people have certain diseases, they are quarantined because if other people go near them, they will catch the disease. Sin is that kind of a thing. In the land of Canaan, their worship was so sensual, so evil, it was so desirable, and so easy for men to fall into their religion that the command of God was utterly destroy the Canaanites. Utterly destroy them. If there was a possibility that they had gone in, could have gone into Canaan and survived with the Canaanites alive, God would have left it. But they couldn't. Their contamination and their pollution was so terrible that God knew that if they were not destroyed, His people would be polluted. And that's exactly what happened. There, and it's the same way that if our flesh, if that fleshly portion of ours is not destroyed, then it will pollute the spiritual portion. God wants in each one of us, He wants this earthly portion of ours that is contaminated with sin to be destroyed, to die. It says that the floods came and destroyed the world. It says, in a like figure, baptism now saves us. The water of God's word had ridden like, risen like a mist for 2,000 years and watered the face of the earth. But there came a time when there was a deluge and the skies opened up and the, and the earth opened up and it flooded the whole world and it destroyed 
everything that was in the world except for Noah and those that were on the ark with him. God's word and water was not sent to destroy in, in, in the original, when it was originally sent. When God gave his word to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, it wasn't meant for that reason that it would dis- destroy them, but it ended up doing that. Because the devil took that word and he used it to deceive them. God's word was not originally given to destroy any of us. But if we stand before God's word, any of us as we are, stand before the commandments, thou shalt have no other gods before me, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not covet. Are there any covetous people here? Covetousness is idolatry. Covetousness is the same as bowing down before Baal and worshiping him in the eyes of God. Are there any hearts free of covetousness that don't covet? We are all guilty and that word destroys all of us. If we submit ourselves under that word, we will be drowned by that word. Every one of us will become guilty before God. But God sends baptism to do two things. To destroy our flesh, to bring death to the old man, and to also make us partakers of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In baptism, we all hear during the baptismal ceremony that that, that we are buried with him through baptism unto death, so that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we also should walk in the newness of life. It brings us into a fellowship with Christ. And I, and I don't expect, I don't fully understand, I don't expect anyone is going to fully understand this, but it brings us into a fellowship. Christ wants us to come and die with Him And this baptism does that. It drowns the old man. It causes that which is of the flesh to die so that we can rise with him and we can live a new life in Christ Jesus. If that doesn't happen, if that doesn't happen, it says not the putting away the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. Some people think that when they are converted and they become Christians that their life becomes a sanctified outward life and they no longer walk in sin or serve sin. That's an out-and-out lie. When the Bible says, when Jesus says, whosoever sinneth is a servant of sin, he doesn't say if they sin willingly, if they sin a lot, if they... He doesn't qualify it at all. He says, whosoever sinneth, period. Little, big, once, a thousand times, it doesn't matter. Whosoever sinneth is the servant of sin. And the servant is not free, but the son is free. And whosoever the son maketh free, he is free indeed. It is There is no such thing as a sanctified life. There is no such thing. Jesus is our sanctification. He is our sanctification. It is not that he allows us 
to change into superhumans who no longer are motivated by the flesh and live in sin and walk a sanctified life. A sanctified life means that I adhere to what our church dictates as a acceptable life. The Essequinans have one sanctified life. We have another sanctified life. The Hatemans have another sanctified life. The Catholics have a sanctified. And they each one have their own rules that they walk by and then they claim to walk a sanctified life. There is none. There is no sanctified life. Our life is not the putting away of the filth of the flesh. It's the answer of a good conscience toward God. And where do we receive a good conscience from? Because we've overcome sin, because we've learned how to be perfect people, because we no longer have anger, no, no longer have covetousness, no. The conscience is cleansed and made pure by the blood of Christ. He died once. He died once for us. And through that death, He has given us each one the gift of righteousness is a gift it's not that the corrupt has become incorrupt it says this corruption has put on incorruption we're clothed with it the corruption is still there but we're clothed and covered with incorruption it's not that this mortal has become <laughs> preaches to the spirits that are in prison the old timers used to speak poetically sometimes of the of the birds who shiver in the cold winter air, caged and, bond, and, and bound to this world. And they used to talk about how one day the warm sun would shine and the warm winds would blow and those birds could freely rise up from the cold floor of this earth and wing their way toward heaven. And they spoke poetically of how a man one day will be free from this flesh. He will be free from this prison. Those spirits will no longer be in the bondage of this flesh, but they will be free to rise up and meet their Creator. They will be free to sing the praises that are choked out here by pride and by unbelief and doubt. They will be free to, to, to praise God and to, and to own the righteousness that is theirs through Christ Jesus because they will no longer be plagued by doubts the mind and the intellect that says, who are you to be righteous? How can you say you're a child of God? These are the prisons that we are in. Those are the prisons that the Spirit is in. Those are the prisons that Jesus in His Spirit went to preach to. And that's the Spirit that He preaches to today. He tries to speak to that Spirit that is within each one of us and says that don't give up. Don't become discouraged because of the bondage of the flesh. Don't become discouraged because you haven't learned to live a sanctified life. But one day you will be with me. You are mine. I have loved you. I have redeemed you. You are beloved of my Father. I am betrothed unto you. You are my bride. And one day we will be together in eternity. That's what His Spirit wants to preach the spirits that are in prison and I could go on and then speak of the uh, of the ark and how it floated upon that water and how that one door opened heavenward and and Noah was saved saved by water he and, and his sons but but 
ponder these things in your own heart and, and read read the scripture and consider consider this that and wonder yourself that why why does it say that that this flood was sent to save Noah the same way that baptism saves us it's if you come to church here and you just listen for a little while and you go home and you forget about it and so on, you don't gain a lot from it. But but read the Bible yourself and ponder these things and ask ask God that if if He chooses that He'd open the He doesn't need to open everything to everyone. No one has to understand everything, but but He will open His Word and He delights in giving good good gifts to His children. So ponder these things and read them so that we can share them together not just one speaking to another but that we can commune about them together we ask these things in Jesus name Amen now may the Lord bless us and keep us may he make his face to shine upon us and be gracious unto us Lord lift up thy countenance upon us and give us all everlasting peace in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost Amen I uh, have a electronic Bible that was left in one of the benches. If someone's missing it, please contact me. We have received word also from the Kingston congregation that's hosting the summer conventions that the motel arrangements and the block of rooms that have been reserved for those needing lodging at the conventions are held until the 1st of June, which is next Tuesday, and after Tuesday they will let them go, and there will be no reserved lodging that those reservations do end by Tuesday. So anyone planning to go from here needing motel lodging for the summer conventions are strongly urged to contact the lodging committee by Tuesday, at which times all the blocks of rooms will be given back to the motels and we're warned that prices will rise significantly confirmation classes there's going to be an additional confirmation class Wednesday from 7 to 9 and then also on Saturday here at the church at 9 o'clock there'll be an evening service tonight at 7 our last Sunday school will be next Sunday at 9.30. There will be a Thursday evening service at 7.30. And then church following communion next Sunday at 10.30. In closing today we'll sing song 283. And during the sing of the song we'll carry a free will offering for the benefit of the church. Thank you, Wilfred. Also the wedding next Saturday of... Uh, Denise Rainey and uh, Seth Hill here at 6 o'clock.